0: Well, good morning, church, and good morning to you over in the Life Center, those watching online. We're so grateful that you guys are here today. Have your Bibles open, God's Word with me to Esther chapter 9. Today, we come to the end of our summer series through the book of Esther. As I have told you uh, before, this is perhaps the most curious book of the Bible if this is your first time here, let me quite uh, quickly rehearse for you a few of the curious aspects that we've looked at since we started this book at the beginning of summer. But it is indeed one of the most curious books of the Bible. One of the reasons is this, God is missing in the book. Now, what I mean by that is God's never mentioned, which is kind of odd if you think about it. I mean, isn't God really the the, the key person in the Bible? Isn't the Bible about God? But yet, here's a book in the Bible where God's not mentioned not even one time. Also, Esther is not really a very religious book. And what I mean by that is there's no references to the temple or to worship or to the scriptures or to prayer or to priest or or anything like that. There's no religious references whatsoever, uh, direct references in the book of Esther. But though there are no references to God or any of those uh, religious things, When you begin to read the book and study the book, you see the fingerprints of God all over the story. You see God working behind the scenes in providential ways and in amazing ways. This book that does not mention God is full of God's activity. As the story of Esther unfolds, there there simply are too many coincidences, too many ironic reversals to believe it all happened by chance. No, it was really the providential hand of God at work. As I said in the very first message, God worked in the story of Esther not through his visible hand of miracle, but through the invisible hand of providence. So here's what we've, we've learned this summer, basically about Esther. Here's what we've learned. God directs the coincidences of our lives, doesn't he? There really are no such things as coincidences, not if you know God. God directs the coincidences of our lives. But not only is this a curious book, this is also a controversial book. At least the last couple of chapters are somewhat controversial. You see, here's how the book ends. We're going to look at it today, chapters 9 and 10. Here's how the book ends. The book ends with the Jews conducting a holy war against their enemies. And then they established a festival called Purim to celebrate their victory. Now, that might sound a little strange to you that the Jews are engaged in a holy war against their enemies, and then after the holy war, they establish a festival to celebrate their victories. But if you think the story of Esther has long been forgotten, my friend, think again. Because the story of Esther is woven throughout our history. One example, a current day example of how Esther has impacted us even here in, in the United States and those in other parts of the world. On February twenty fifth, 1994, newspapers reported that 55 Palestinians were killed and, and 170 more were wounded at a mosque at Abraham's tomb in Hebron in Israel. The assailant was an American, a Jewish man who had immigrated to Israel in 1982. It's interesting what happened that day. of few hours before the assault, he was at his synagogue celebrating the festival of Purim, what we'll read about today. And they were reading the book of Esther. They're reading how the Jews had a holy war against their enemies. And as this American physician was worshiping and listening to the book of Esther at his synagogue, he heard nearby the, the Arabs in their mosque. He was filled with hatred. Hatred against those that he saw as his enemies. Much like the, the heartbreaking scenes we've seen in Charlottesville yesterday. He was so filled with, with hatred against another person, another group of people that he went home and he got his rifle. He brought it back to the mosque. And he shot 111 times. As he killed 55 Palestinians and wounded 170 others, he decided to launch his own holy war against what he perceived to be his enemies. He decided to do what he read in the book of Esther. He decided to take his enemies to task. He decided to try to eliminate his enemies. And and you know what? He hoped that he would be viewed as Mordecai from the book of Esther. So if you think this thing is an ancient book, it really isn't. The last two chapters in Esther are are controversial and yet extremely relevant to our society today. It begins, the first verse in chapter 9 says it all, on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. The edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. This was the anticipated day, wasn't it? This was the dreaded day. We've read about for several chapters now. When the edict of Haman was to be carried out, this was the day that they had anticipated. But it was also the same day that Mordecai's edict was to be carried out, allowing the Jews to to defend themselves. And here's what it says in verse 1. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. Those harboring anti-Semitic sentiments were eager. They were ready for slaughter. They had been waiting on this day. Do you remember for how long? How long had they, had they been waiting? The enemies been waiting for this day. Eleven months. When, when Haman first issued the edict... 11 months passed. They cast the purr, decided what day it would be, the 13th day of Adar. So they were waiting for 11 months to carry out this day. Finally, the anticipated day was here. And now they were going to have the opportunity to slaughter the Jews. And notice what it says in verse 1. But now the tables were turned. You might want to write this in your Bibles, in the the column of your Bible. The opposite happened. Remember that phrase. The opposite happened. The enemies of the Jews were intent on slaughtering them on this particular day, but now the tables were turned. Now the opposite happened. Suddenly on this day, the power shifted. The Jews were given the green light to defend themselves, and suddenly the the tables were turned against their enemies. Read verse 2. The Jews assembled in their cities and all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those seeking their destruction. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. Now remember, this, it wasn't the Jews who declared war on the Gentiles. It was the Gentiles who had declared war on the Jews. And the Bible says here that nobody could stand against them. That is, that there was no group who could successfully uh, stand against them. All of those groups that hated the Jews were defeated. Verse 3. Keep reading. And all the nobles and the The satraps and the governors and the king's administrators helped the Jews because of fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces and he became more and more powerful. Now here's here's what these verses are talking about. Faced with two competing edicts, the government officials decide to go with Mordecai. They had the Edict of Haman that said the Jews should be exterminated on this particular day. They also had the, the Edict of Mordecai that said that the Jews could defend themselves on that particular day. And faced with those two edicts, guess what? The leaders of the government said, you know what? I think we'll, we better go with Mordecai. One of the reasons, Haman's already dead, Right? So they say, the wise thing to do, the political thing to do, the wise political move would be to put our weight behind Mordecai. It would be to support him. And that's what happened. It was a smart move. Now Mordecai wears the king's ring and he gains more and more political power. Verse 5. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In verse 5, we see the first explicit statement regarding the holy war that the Jews engaged in. Although they took offensive action, they did so from a defensive necessity. You see, large groups within the Persian Empire were committed to their destruction. So read it again. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. Now, I want you to notice some things about about this holy war, if you will. Write these down if you're taking notes. These are important points to remember. First of all, the Jews were attacking only their enemies. It says those who hated them. It was Number two, it was confined to a particular day, the 13th day of Adar. Number three, did you notice that only men are mentioned here? That only the men were killed? Remember that the edict that Mordecai had put out was, was a duplicate of what Haman had put out. And so the Jews had permission to kill everyone, men, women, and children. And we talked about that awful stuff last week. But they had permission to kill everyone, including the women and children. But apparently they did not. Apparently they spared the women and children. You see, their goal was simply to rid themselves of their enemies, not to slaughter everyone. They apparently showed mercy that Haman never would have. Now, you say, well, pastor, what's this phrase? It says, they did what they pleased. Look at it again, verse 5. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did what they pleased to those who hated them. What, what does, that doesn't sound very good, that they did what they pleased to those who hated them. It simply means that no one could stop them. They did what they pleased. No one could oppose them. They, they had the backing of Mordecai's edict, the, if you will, the backing of the Persian king. And it, and also they had what appeared to be perhaps divine assistance. No one could stop them. They did what they pleased, is what that means. Verse 6, now I want you to dig in with me here. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. The report that in the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed 500 men shows how deeply the Jewish hatred had spread. It shows how many people in the city of Susa had hated the Jews, how that poison of hatred had spread into the city against the Jews. It just shows how many people were against them. Verse 7. They also killed, and now, if you want to start in verse 7 and and in verse 8, if you want to go ahead and pronounce those names for me, I would appreciate it. Verse 7 and 8, here's what they did. They, They killed the sons of Haman. We're going to you can see the names listed, verse ten. It says the ten sons of Haman, sons of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. It's likely that the ten sons of Haman were perhaps planning an attack to to avenge their father's death by killing Mordecai. So the ten sons of Haman were included in the enemies uh, among the enemies, and they were killed as well. But pay close attention to verse the verse ten, how it ends. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Everybody look right here. I will show you something. And Over in the Life Center, I want to make sure you see this. The author is careful to say three different times in this story that the Jews did not lay their hands on the plunder. Verse 10, verse 15, verse 16. Three different, I've told you before, if you've been here at any time at all, that when something is repeated in Scripture, in verse after verse, that that is a red flag where God's saying, this is very, very important. You need to remember this. You need to see this. You need to understand this. Three times in this brief story in chapter 9, we're told that they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Verse 10, verse 15, verse 16. Mordecai's decree allowed them to take the plunder. If you go back and look in chapter 8, it allowed them to take the plunder of their enemies, but they did not take the plunder. And the question would be, why? Why did not they take the, the property of their enemies when they were allowed to do so? Everybody listen, I'll tell you why. They were not after wealth. They wanted only to protect themselves. And they wanted to finish what Saul had failed to do 500 years earlier when he fought the Amalekites, the enemies of God's people. You see, this wasn't just a war. This was a holy war. A holy war where God's people were taking a stand against God's enemies. Where God's people were the agents, if you will, of God's wrath against his enemies. And so we read in verse 11, follow closely as I read, The number of those slain in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. And the king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the ten sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? And it will be given you. What is your request? It will be granted. The king saying, here's what he's saying. Anything else? They've, honey, let me tell you something. They've killed 500 here in the city of Susa. Is there anything else you want? Anything else you need? Now, this is where Esther has gotten a bad name. Some have viewed Esther as being very spiteful and, and, and someone who kind of kind of went overboard, if you will. I, I don't believe that's the case, but this is where they get that idea. Verse 13. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. Now, they were already dead. Why are we going to hang them on the gallows if they're already dead? It was not to kill them. It was to display them. To display their corpses. To make a statement. Verse 14, So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they hanged the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar. Put to death in Susa, 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Many scholars have debated why did Esther say, We need one more day? Just give us one more day. We need to attack. Well, here's what I want you to notice. Would you notice where they were going to attack? They were going to attack only in the city of Susa. She did not say, give us one more day so that we can continue to kill all over the, the provinces, the 127 provinces of the Persian Empire. Didn't say that. She said, we just need one more day here in Susa. Apparently, there were some enemies there that had, had gotten away, that had escaped, and, and she knew about them. She knew where they were or had gotten word, gotten intel, if you will, about it. And now she's saying, there's, there's still some enemies out there that we need to deal with. Give us one more day just here in Susa to deal with them. And so they did. Now, this whole thing about hanging Haman's sons, that seems barbaric in our view. But in ancient warfare, that was a common custom. And basically, here was the statement. What these men and what their fathers stood for will never be allowed again. That's why they were hanging them. Putting them up for everyone to to, to see and to say what these men stood for. The hatred that they stood for will never be allowed again. Can I just say, just parenthetically, I hope that we can come to the place in our country where we can say as a, as a country one day what the, the, the bigots and the racial tension that we have in our country, I hope that we can say one day, this is beyond us, this is behind us, this is over, and may it never happen again i got a text today. I didn't mean to throw all this in here, but i am just got to tell you. I've got an African-American pastor who's a friend of mine. Uh, he's pastors in North Carolina. He sends me a text every Sunday morning to let me know that he's praying for me. And here was his text this morning. He said, This morning I interceded to God in your behalf. Let us continue to pray for the racial tensions in the United States. And then he quotes Galatians 3 where he says, For as many as to Christ were baptized did put on Christ." There is not here Jew or Greek, there is not here servant or free man, there is not here male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Amen and amen. We need to get to that point as a nation where we can say, this is behind us, this is not of us, this is not of God, and we need to walk together. Now, uh, I kind of took a side road there for a second. Let me get back to verse 16. Verse 16. In verse 16, Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them but did not lay their hands on the plunder. And this happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar. On the 14th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. And the Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and the 14th, and then on the 15th day they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. Now you say, Pastor, what is all this about? Get your pen ready. There's two words, key words I want you to mark in your Bible. Get your pen ready. I want you to look for the word rested. They rested. Verse 17. And the reason that they rested was because of another word in verse 16, the word relief. The Jews in Persia had lived on the edge for 11 months. They had lived with anxiety and the tension of knowing that their enemy was out there and wanted to slaughter them on a particular day. They knew what the day of slaughter would be. They knew when the day of slaughter would come. And every time they looked into the faces of their daughters, they thought about that day of slaughter. When they held their wives in their arms, they thought about that day of slaughter that was coming. When when they would go to worship at the synagogue, they, I'm sure, thought about that day of slaughter that was coming. Whenever they held their grandbabies in their arms, arms, they thought about, but there's a day of slaughter coming. How in the world? And, and the tension mounted and the tension grew, the anxiety grew, day after day after day as they got closer to that day of slaughter. And then the opposite happened. And when the opposite happened, suddenly, you know what they experienced? Relief. Relief. they rested and you would too and they celebrated and you would too if you had lived under the potential death sentence for 11 months and looked in the faces of your loved ones for 11 months and thought about the day of slaughter if all of a sudden you realize that day of slaughter is no more in fact the tables have turned the opposite happened there would be relief and resting celebration. And that's what led to what the Jews now call the Feast of Purim. Let's read about it in verse 20 and following. Follow very carefully. Verse 20. Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the province of the king Xerxes near and far and to have them celebrate annually have them celebrate when church annually the 14th and the 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief there's that word again from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy this is beautiful and their mourning into a day of celebration in other words they're setting aside this day so that every year they can remember every year they can celebrate every year they can they can Call to mind again how God, in his, by his invisible hand of providence, turned their mourning into joy. And so here's what it says. As the time, verse 22, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy, their mourning into a day of celebration, he wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and the gifts to the poor. I mean, this is a day of celebration. This feast is a time of great celebration. It is the most festive feast and festival of, of all the, the Jewish holidays. Verse 23, so the Jews agreed to continue the celebration. They had begun doing what Mordecai had written to them. Keep reading. For Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the purr, that is the lot. You remember that if you were here in, earlier in the book, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back on their own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, these days were called Purim, which is plural for pur, and it's from the word pur. Because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it upon themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail... Notice this word, without fail, should observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. Remember that. Without fail, every, uh, uh, observe these two days every year. Verse 28. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, in every province, and in every city. Did you, did you see a word repeated there? Every. Every. Repeat it four times. This is something that everybody who is a Jew is to remember. And these days of Purim should... What's that next word? Should what? Should never cease to be celebrated by the Jews. Underline that. These days of Purim should never cease to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of them die out among their descendants. So Queen Esther, daughter of Ab- Abihel... Along with Mordecai, the Jew wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Xerxes, words of goodwill and assurance, to establish these days of Purim at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of feasting or fasting and limitations. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. Pastor, why did you read all of that? Here's the reason. The feast of Purim was to remind the people year after year that God had saved Israel from destruction. And it says, as I've called your attention, Every generation, every family, every province, every city, every year. It was an annual reminder of God's intervention. And that annual reminder of God's intervention has given hope to God's people that God would ultimately deliver His people, the Jews, year after year after year. In fact, did you know that to this very day, the Jews still celebrate Purim? They read the story of Esther every year at the celebration of Purim. In fact, it might interest you to know that the children come dressed in costumes and they kind of act out the parts. The adults sometimes come dressed up as well. And the atmosphere is kind of like a drama being played out. Here's what, It's kind of funny. Here's what happens. When they're playing out the drama, when they're reading the story and the people are gathering around and, and they're reading the story, when the, when the names of Mordecai and Esther are mentioned, everybody cheers. And when the name of Haman is mentioned, everybody boos and stomps their feet. It's not a reenactment of a tragedy, it's a celebration of a triumph. Now, when I was preparing, when I was preparing, studying for this months ago, I came across an article in the Jerusalem Post. It was dated March the 11th, 2017, and the, and the title is this, PM, Prime Minister. And here's what he said, Persians didn't succeed in killing Jews in days of Haman, they won't succeed today. That was the, the title. Uh, let me read a little bit of this to you. Netanyahu, Netanyahu has often channeled the Purim story when discussing the Iranian threat. This is in March of 2017. Just as the Persians did not succeed in killing the Jews in antiquity, neither will the Iranians succeed today. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Saturday night before the reading of the book of Esther in the central synagogue of Caesarea. Before the traditional reading, Netanyahu, surrounded by his security detail and little children in costume, turned to the children and said, What is the holiday about and what do we celebrate and what do we remember and what did they try to do do to us? Kill us, the children said. Where, Netanyahu asked? In Persia, they answered. Did they succeed? the prime minister asked. No, one child said, the opposite happened. Right, it didn't happen, Netanyahu said, the opposite happened. Also, do they they want to destroy us from Persia, but they will not succeed. The congregation applauded and Netanyahu went to sit down next to his son Abner to hear the reading. Netanyahu has often channeled the Purim story when discussing the Iranian threat. For instance, on Thursday in Moscow at a joint photo opportunity with Russian President Vladimir Putin, Netanyahu used Putin's greetings for a happy Purim as a peg to blast Tehran. I thank you for your good wishes on Purim, the Prime Minister said. Some 2,500 years ago in ancient Persia, there was an attempt to wipe out the Jews, which did not succeed and which we commemorate with this holiday. Today, Netanyahu said, Iran, who is the heir of the Persians, has similar designs. They want to wipe out the state of the Jews. They said this clearly, and it is etched on their ballistic missiles. He also drew a similar analogy in March of 2015 during his speech to a joint session of the U.S. Congress against the Iranian nuclear threat that infuriated then-President Barack Obama. And here's what he said when he was in America. We're an ancient people, he said. In our nearly 4,000 years of history, many have tried repeatedly to destroy the Jewish people. Tomorrow night on the Jewish holiday of Purim, we'll read the book of Esther. We'll read of a powerful Persian viceroy named Haman who plotted to destroy the Jewish people some 2,500 years ago. But a courageous Jewish woman named Queen Esther exposed the plot and gave for the Jewish people the right to defend themselves against their enemies. The plot was foiled and our people were saved. The reason I took the time to read all of that, here's what I want you to see. The story of Esther is being played out even today. Today's time. There are still the Persians who are trying to kill the Jews. There are still others who are trying to kill the Jews. And here's what you need to remember. We as Christians don't celebrate Purim. But we do need a way to remember all that God has done for us to set us free. See, that's what Purim is all about. Is it's a way to remember that God has delivered His people and God will deliver His people. It's a way to remember all that God did to set them free. We as Christians need something like that too. We, we don't need to celebrate the Jewish day of Purim, but we need to celebrate our day of deliverance. Now, one of the ways that God has given us to celebrate our day of deliverance is with the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is an opportunity for us to remember the price that was paid for our deliverance to set us free. But even beyond the Lord's Supper, perhaps you need to set aside some time and remember your day of deliverance. And if you haven't had a day of deliverance, I hope that today would be your day of deliverance. My day of deliverance came when I was 11 years old. And I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And and when I gave my life to Jesus Christ, that was the day He set me free. That was the day He conquered my enemies. That was the day He gave me, watch these words, that was the day He gave me rest and relief. I wish I had time, I've got it in my notes, but Hebrews chapter 4, you can read about rest and relief that is made possible through Jesus Christ in Hebrews chapter 4. Here's what I want you to know. If you're living in the uncertain days of Esther, see everybody watch, 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 watch. Uh, look up here, over the last year, look up here. If you're living at the end of, of Esther, it's, a, it's celebration time, right? But for some of you, you're not there yet. For some of you, you're living in the middle days of Esther. And if you're living in the middle days of Esther and things are uncertain, and you're living in the middle days of Esther and things are hard, if you're living in uncertain days like Esther did, remember these three phrases. Three phrases that summarize the entire book. God knows. God sees. God acts. Summarize what God, the the invisible, providential hand of God was all through the book. God knows. God sees and God acts. In a Nazi concentration camp during Hitler's days, a Jewish prisoner had written words on the wall of his prison cell. And here's what he said. Here's what he wrote on the walls. He said, I believe in the sun even when it's not shining. I believe in love even when I don't feel it. I believe in God, even when He is silent. There was another Jew, a nameless Jew, who said, I still believe in God, and I'm sure he was thinking about the book of Esther. God knows. God sees. God acts. By the way, did you know that the Nazis, whenever they found the Jews in the prisons... Whenever they found the Jews with the the book of Esther, they always took the book away from them destroyed it. And did you know that those same Jews sat down and they wrote out the story of Esther from memory when their books were stolen? Because they wanted to remember, God will deliver me. Now, not all of them were saved, of course. Millions of them were, were executed. But God saved His people, didn't He? God saved the Jewish people. And I don't know what God might do in your life. I don't know, it might be some hard days, but you hang on to those three words, three phrases from Esther. God knows. God sees. God acts. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the book of Esther. Thank you for reminding us that we can find rest. We can find relief from our enemies. And the greatest holy war of all was when Jesus Christ died on the cross to defeat our greatest enemy of all. And I pray that if anyone doesn't know your Savior, they would find rest today from their own works. They would find relief today from their own sin as they place their faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you for reminding us you do always eventually deliver your people. Whether you deliver us in this world or you deliver us in glory. We are yours. You know. You see. And you act. And we are grateful in Jesus name. Amen.